0: Turn with me, if you would, in your copies of God's Word to Genesis 32. It's Genesis 32, and we'll pick up our reading there at verse 9. Genesis 32, starting here at the ninth verse hear once again the word of our God. Jacob said, O God of my father Abraham and God of my father Isaac, the Lord which said unto me, return unto thy country and to thy kindred and I will deal well with thee. I am not worthy of the least of all the mercies and of all the truth which thou hast showed unto thy servant. For with my staff... I passed over this Jordan, and now I am become two bands. Deliver me, I pray thee, from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I fear him, lest he will come and smite me and the mother with the children. And thou saidst, I will surely do thee good, and make thy seed as the sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered for multitude. And then come down with me to verse 24. And Jacob was left alone, and there wrestled a man with him until the breaking of the day. And when he saw that he prevailed not against him, he touched the hollow of his thigh, and the hollow of Jacob's thigh was out of joint as he wrestled with him. And he said, Let me go, for the day breaketh. And he said, I will not let thee go, except thou bless me. And he said unto him, What is thy name? And Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, for I have seen God face to face, and my life is preserved. And as he passed over Penuel, the sun rose upon him, and he halted upon his thigh. Therefore the children of Israel eat not of the sinew which shrank, which is upon the hollow of the thigh unto this day, because he touched the hollow of Jacob's thigh in the sinew of that shrank. Amen. And may the Lord add to us this evening the blessing of his word. You Remember, beloved, now weeks ago uh, we began taking up Genesis 32 to understand better what it is for the saint to wrestle with God. Why the saint wrestles and even the grounds upon which we can say that God requires his people to wrestle with him. Genesis 32 then comes to us as a text that is not only history, but it is certainly instructive for our own experiences. But as we look at this text, I think it's right for us to begin. First, by considering the first principles of what it is to wrestle with God. And of course, in Genesis 32, that first principle, if you like, is the suffering and the affliction that runs right through the whole chapter. But as you look at Genesis 32, as you see the patriarch in affliction, as you see the man here suffering, what you do see in Jacob, and this can't be missed, is that the man knows how rightly to think about affliction. Before he wrestles with God at Peniel, before he comes to that climactic moment that's at the end of this text, we already see a patriarch who knows very well how to think about God's providences, especially those providences that are contrary to his own expectation. The man here already has a robust theology of affliction. And, beloved, that is the first principle to wrestling with God. We must be people who, like Jacob, know, and know from the scriptures how we are to see God's providences and how we're to do so in a way that glorifies God. Now, as we look at Jacob in this moment, as we see a man under real duress, we come, of course, away from his prayer, verses 9 to 12, and into that moment in verse 24 where Jacob is left alone. And Just briefly, allow me to remind you really how momentous this occasion really is. This is a genuine crisis, and it's a crisis that's not merely, it's not merely about Jacob's life. It's not merely about his possessions or even his children. It's something far more than that. You remember Jacob, of course, is the elect child, not Esau. The covenant rests upon Jacob, not his brother. And so here in this moment, as Jacob expects that Esau will come with his 400 men, and as he says here in verse 12, smite himself, the women with the children, the crisis in Jacob's mind is covenantal, thoroughly, thoroughly covenantal. Will the one who is God's elect, the one with whom God has entered solemnly into covenant, will that one be destroyed? Now, beloved, we already know the answer to that question. We already know, of course, that Jacob will be preserved. But it doesn't change the fact that in this moment, the patriarch sees all kinds of dangers that seem to threaten that very promise. This is the crisis of Genesis 32. Jacob is surrounded, as it were, by cross-providences, providences that seem to stand contrary to God's promises. Now if we understand that, then we come, I think, with better understanding to these verses before us this evening. As you look at verses 24 and 25, you find a man without sleep. Here you find Jacob. Having prayed what he had in the preceding verses, he fell to preparation. And now as he awaits a day that he expects very well maybe a day of carnage, the man is left awake. He is awake and he's alone. And Jacob was left alone. And as he was left alone, doing here not something that we should consider as contrary to faith, he's doing the work of a watchman. He, he is conscious of the day that's before him. And so he is doing precisely, in a sense, the very thing the Lord would have him do. He's prayed, and so now he watches. But as he watches, in verse 24, you find he's accosted. And there wrestled a man with him until the breaking of the day. Now, what's striking is the scriptures are very clear. The duration of this combat was long. Jacob, a man, if we take James Usher's accounting, a man of over 90 years, wrestling all the night long with this assailant, in the dark, without sleep. It's a point that we shouldn't miss. Here we find the patriarch watching, and of course watching with, in the back of his mind, so many fears dogging him. And now he's accosted in this way. And then in verse 25, we find that he's not only struggling. but The text reads, and when he saw, that is, when the one who wrestled with Jacob saw that he prevailed not against him, that's Jacob, he, the one with whom Jacob wrestled, touched the hollow of his thigh, that's Jacob's thigh. And the hollow of Jacob's thigh was out of joint as he wrestled with him. It's not only the case that the man was forced to wrestle all the night long. But here we find that Jacob is not only struggling, he leaves the combat wounded. Now, beloved, as we look at this text, we can't miss, of course, that the subsequent verses tell us precisely who Jacob wrestles with. This is a theophany. This is God manifesting himself extraordinarily. To the patriarch. And so when we read in this text. That Jacob was accosted. And we read in this text. That Jacob was wounded. It's crucial for us to remember. Who was the one who wrestled him? Who was the one who wounded him? Well it was the Lord Jehovah. It was God. The same God. Who said to him in the previous chapter. Return unto the land of thy fathers. And to thy kindred and I will be with thee. The same God who said, I am the God of Bethel, where thou anointest anointest the pillar, and where thou vowest the vow unto me. Now arise, get thee out of this land, and return unto the land of thy kindred. The God whom Jacob has already said, has said to him, I will do thee well in this land. This is the God with whom Jacob wrestles. This is the God who wounds the patriarch. The theme, beloved, in Genesis 32, really from start to finish, is this crucial aspect of the believer's life. Where at times, God's providences seem to be starkly contrast to his providences. Where the Lord sometimes appears to act contrary to his own word. Certainly that was Jacob's experience. The God who here has promised him so much is now the God, not Esau, not one of Esau's 400 men, but it is the Lord himself who will wrestle and the Lord himself who will wound the patriarch. Now as we keep that as our theme, that the Lord indeed sometimes appears to act contrary to his promise. I want us to consider that under two headings. First of all, the appearances that the Lord makes. These appearances that seem to be starkly in contrast with his promise. And take that in light of the context. You remember in our time in Jacob's prayer that in the very beginning of Genesis 32, you have here the patriarch promised great things. And and really, from the moment that he makes his journey southward, he has tokens of divine blessing. And even protection. You remember the very first verse, Jacob finds the, the Lord's host. Now you remember that as God appears miraculously, and even as he sends other beings, such as angels to appear miraculously to his people, the way of their appearance, the manner in which they make themselves manifest... Is crucial. It's tied to the context. And so when God has his angels appear to Jacob as a host, as an army, of course, what did that signify? Well, it signified that the Lord God would be Jacob's protection. That the Lord would be the one who would be, who would provide for him his safety. It would be his army that would be the securing of Jacob and his family. That's how Jacob comes south. But then you remember, of course, the messengers return with that ominous note that Esau is coming with 400 of his men. It sounds warlike, doesn't it? Even though God has promised to do well to Jacob, even though Jacob makes his pilgrimage with even great tokens of God's provision of safety, now in this moment providence seems to argue Well, it seems to argue that Jacob is going to encounter great difficulty, great suffering. Now, beloved, as you look at verse 24 in light of that, what do you see? Well, you see yet another cross providence. You see a man who is left waiting, watching. And now now he's locked in combat the whole night through. This is very different, very different, friend, than what we should expect the patriarch expected when he made his way across the Jordan. And even more staggeringly, the one with whom he wrestles is the very God who had promised to do well with him there. It's across providence, certainly. But, beloved, this is how the Lord does deal with his people you will see right throughout the scriptures that often it's the case that the promises of God and his providences seem to the believer in the moment to be starkly at odds. I mean, take just for a few examples. Take David. Take a man who was anointed by Samuel to be Israel's king. Note what the Lord says through his prophet. The Lord said to Samuel, Arise, anoint him, for this is he. Now that's 1 Samuel 16. If you turn over to the very first verse of 1 Samuel 27, you'll find David's words. David said in his heart, I shall now perish one day by the hand of Saul. There's the promise. The promise is that God had said David will rule. But then in his heart, as David sees Saul's power, And as he sees his own smallness, and he sees that he's been left time and again to Saul's wrath, though not consumed by it, David says in his heart, he will one day destroy me. The providences in David's assessment seem so very contrary to God's dealings with him in providence. Take Hezekiah. Here the man prays, I said in the cutting off of my days, I shall go to the gates of the grave. I am deprived of the residue of my years. I have cut off like a weaver my life. He will cut me off with pining sickness. Note what the, note what the king prays there. The king there in that point says very pointedly, my life is being cut off in a way that I did not expect. It is being cut off contrary to what I would have thought. Now, beloved, note what he says at the very end. Who was the one that was cutting off his life contrary to his own expectation? He will cut me off with pining sickness. Now, friend, as we take all of these together, Jacob's experience with just those two that I've cited before you, what do you note? Well, you note, first of all, that there is, of course, an external providence that these souls are fixed upon, that is really the cause of their affliction. But it's not purely external. There's an internal component that we can't miss. Another example is Paul. Paul in 2 Corinthians, we were pressed out of measure above strength. That's the external aspect. But here's the internal. We despaired even of life. You see, the believer in these moments, as Jacob certainly felt, the believer saw these cross-providences and they wrought in him an internal an internal discomfort a real a real internal fear and trembling paul puts it a despairing even of life now why well this is so crucial and this brings us back to how we began jacob has a robust theology of affliction as he looks at the occurrences of his life, those things that happen to him that are really external to him, he knows the source. Beloved, he's one, he is one who has well skilled in tracing occurrences back to their primary causes. In other words, as I've said to you often before, Jacob is well schooled in tracing secondary causes, back to their first cause. Why is the believer, for instance, as in Hezekiah's prayer, tracing his external afflictions, his bodily, his temporal maladies, back to the Lord? It's because they know, of course, don't they, that the Lord Jehovah... Is the God who has done whatsoever he is pleased. It is God who is Lord over providence. And so as they look at these providences, they trace these things back to the Lord who has overruled them all. If they're afflicted by wicked men, they know wicked men are called to the Lord's hand. In other words, as you have it in Psalm 39, even when they look at pestilence and all other kinds of temporal difficulties, they say, I open not my mouth because thou didst it. Remove thy stroke away from me. I am consumed by the blow of thine hand. Beloved, they are not atheists, those who wrestle with God like Jacob does here. When they see providences, they are keenly aware that it is God who has sent these things. It is God who has overruled all these things to be as they are. Now, that's the external. Take, for instance, and just for a moment longer, the internal aspect of this text. When you look at verses 24 and 25 of Genesis 32... You recognize, don't you, that, that this is still, of course, the same man who prayed what he did in verses 9 to 12. That This is still the man, still the very self-same patriarch, who really at the zenith, perhaps, of his whole life, comes to make a remarkable confession. That confession that I'm referring to being, what well, you have there in verse 10. He's not worthy of any of the things, the mercies or the truths that God has shown him. And he pleads, he confesses unworthiness, but he pleads then not even upon the basis of this prayer. He pleads upon the basis of the Lord's covenant. He pleads the promises of God. This is a remarkable moment in the life of the patriarch. A moment that shows to us really conspicuously the piety of the man. This is the man, if you like, exercising great grace, demonstrating that the Lord God has done a wonderful work of grace in his heart. Immediately after that, the Lord comes as his combatant. Immediately after this high moment in which the man is melted, both clinging to the promises of God and sensible of his own unworthiness, the Lord comes and he wounds him. see, beloved, I don't think we should read this text thinking that all that Jacob experienced in this moment was purely external. In fact, as we come to the subsequent verses in the time to come, God willing, we'll see that there's good reason to see that there's great spiritual affliction in this moment as well. Beloved, just as we said about external providences, we can say the same thing about spiritual experiences. Sometimes, Through spiritual experience, it appears as though the Lord is acting contrary to his promise. Again, just a few examples. Take what you have in the psalmist. The psalmist says, In my prosperity, I said, I shall never be moved. Lord, by thy favor, thou hast made my mountain to stand strong. You see the man's expectation. The man, as he as he has these wonderful experiences that, that we should not really ex- restrict only to temporal blessing, as he's had these wonderful experiences, tokens of God's favor, he expects that these things will only continue. But then note what he says in the very next verse. Thou didst hide thy face, and I was troubled. He leaves the pinnacle of spiritual experience, and he falls immediately into confusion. Take another example, specifically that of Job. Again, the text that we read there, Job says, He hath destroyed me on every side, and I am gone. And mine hope hath he removed like a tree. He hath also kindled his wrath against me, and he counteth me unto him as one of his enemies. His troops come together and raise up their way against me, and encamp round about my tabernacle. Beloved, if you're reading the book of Job rightly, you'll notice that, of course, the temporal afflictions that he faces both in the first and second chapters are significant. But as you read throughout the rest of the book, the book demonstrates time and again that Job's greatest afflictions were internal. The greatest afflictions the man faced were that of the soul. And then when you come to this chapter, Job 19, and he reflects on these things, did you notice the pronoun? That pronoun that continued to resurface time and again. Who was it that Job saw was dealing with him in this way? Who was it that was sending even these afflictions? Not just body, but even to the soul. He, says the man, he hath destroyed me on every side. Mine hope hath he removed like a tree. Just another example from Heman. Take Psalm 88. Thou hast laid me in the lowest pit, in darkness, in the deeps. Thy wrath lieth hard upon me, and thou hast afflicted me with all thy ways. Again, beloved, Psalm 88 is so very pointedly just the spiritual affliction of a man. But what's striking about that last piece that I've cited from Job and from Heman are how those two statements are followed or or prefaced with these words. For Job, that statement, after he comes away and he says that it's God who has counted him as one of his enemies, he says immediately thereafter, I know that my Redeemer liveth. And then you come to Psalm 88. Psalm 88, Heman begins with these words. O Lord God of my salvation. It's a staggering tension, isn't it? That these ones who are tracing their spiritual afflictions directly back to God are the same ones who say, the Lord God is my Redeemer, the very God of my salvation. What do we make of this? Well, beloved, as we look at this, this spiritual aspect of affliction, We understand that just as they did external providences, so also the believer traces even spiritual experiences, in some sense, back to the Lord. What I mean by that is the very thing you have in Psalm 30, verse 7. Thou didst hide thy face, and I was troubled. Thou didst hide thy face, and I was troubled. It's put there negatively. It's the Lord who hid his face, and as a result, then, the psalmist was plunged into trouble. But you can't miss the implication, can you? The afflicted psalmist says his soul is afflicted because the Lord has hid his face. And Why could we say that? Well, the answer is so very simple. Could God not turn the man's mourning into dancing? Could God not take off his sackcloth and gird him with gladness? Certainly he could. You see, in this text, and very much like our own, beloved, the believer, as he is undergoing all kinds of spiritual difficulty, will find really the sting of that difficulty in this, that he knows that this difficulty is not invincible. He knows that his God may overcome it, may leap it over like he would the mountains of Bather. And yet, for a time, the Lord doesn't. For a time, instead, the Lord hides his face. That, in many ways, beloved, reveals the sting of the believer in these cross-providences, internal and external. But that leads us finally, as we close, to what you have in verse twenty-six, uh, in sorry verse twenty-five, in verse twenty-four you have that cross providence, where Jacob is watching and is accosted, and in verse twenty-five is then wounded. But there's a striking there's a striking phrase that recurs not only in this text but one at least a theme that follows after. There wrestled a man with him until the breaking of the day, says verse 24. But then verse 25, this. When he, that is God, saw that he prevailed not against him. That is Jacob. First of all, in verse 24 we're told that the contest again was all night. Here you have a 90 year old man wrestling all the night through. And The point is, he continued to wrestle. The point of verse 24 and verse 25 is that Jacob actually remained in combat. He continued to strive. In spite of his old age, in spite of his difficulties, in spite of his tiredness, and in spite of all of the stresses of the crisis, he continued to wrestle. But that's not all that the text tells us. The text also says, and this is so striking, isn't it, Strikingly, the man who wrestled with Jacob saw that he prevailed not against him. Now, why is that striking? It's striking, of course, because the one with whom Jacob wrestles is the Lord God Omnipotent. And so what is the text telling us? We'll certainly come to this in the subsequent verses, but Calvin, I think, puts it best. Here you have the language of accommodation. Here, God makes it appear as though he is overcome by this aged, by this infirm patriarch. It's a striking thing, but what does it teach us? Beloved, it teaches us that even under these contrary providences, even under these appearances that the Lord seems contrary to his people, the Lord himself is gives strengthening grace to make the saint victorious. I mean, I don't really need to prove that to you, do I? Who gave Jacob, this man, the strength to wrestle the whole night through? Uh, The question, of course, uh, can be even made more broadly, couldn't it? Who is the one that gives strength to any man in any moment? The Lord God of heaven and earth dwelleth not in temples made with hands, neither is worshipped with men's hands as though he needed anything, seeing he giveth life to, to all life and breath and all things. Job 12, in whose hand is the soul of every living thing and the breath of all mankind. Beloved, who was it that sustained Jacob's temporal frame to wrestle as he does in Genesis 32? None other than the God who appears to him extraordinarily here. But of course we know that there's more to this. And we'll see that subsequently. There is more to this wrestling than than just its physical aspects. This is an expression of faith. We'll see that subsequently. But do you remember how even the prayer itself that really, really explains to us this moment is also an expression of faith. Jacob goes to the very God who is the Lord of Providence. In whose hand Esau and his 400 men are firmly fixed, doing his bidding. And yet notwithstanding that contrariness that he might see there, yet he goes to God in prayer. Beloved, it's an exercise of faith. As the man here is wrestling all night, he does not despair. He does not give over. And though we can ask the question, when did Jacob know that he wrestled with the theophany, with God appearing extraordinarily, still it remains that the man, despite all of these difficulties, did not give himself over. And so what do we make of that? Friend, as we close, it's just this, isn't it? That strengthening grace that God gives to his own. Beloved, it is nothing less than the Lord keeping the man's faith from falling. It is merely a fulfillment of what what the apostle promises. All of those who belong to the Lord are kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation. Why is it that Jacob could wrestle with a God who appeared to be an enemy? Why is it that Jacob could go so boldly as he does in this text toward a God who has seemingly made Jacob his stated enemy? Oh, beloved, it's because the Lord God with whom he wrestles is the very self-same God who gave strengthening grace and kept alive that flicker of faith. Beloved, what you see here in Genesis 32 is that none prevail through cross providences. None wrestle with God aright without this strengthening grace. And this is a grace, of course, that leads us to think rightly about affliction. We are so preoccupied, aren't we? We are so captivated, aren't we, with the circumstances, with the exigencies, with the secondary causes that we fail to do as Jacob does and as so many others as we've already seen this evening have done, and to trace all of those providences back to their author. Beloved Jacob is an example to us not to make that mistake. This is the time to remember that all that befalls us is in the Lord's hand. But as you look at this text too, as you see a man, as you see a man not only aged, but a man like us who is a compound of dust and of sin, it raises the question, how could he have such faith? How could he remain firm? How could he prevail as you see Job does in Job 19? to call the Lord his Redeemer, the one who is his refuge, even when the Lord appears to be acting contrary. Beloved, what you see here is that Jacob's strength was not in himself, was in the Lord his God. And so how blessed is the man whose strength is in thee, in whose heart are the ways of them. Beloved, Jacob wrestles with God because God has given him grace to do so. And all of God's saints rest upon that grace. The only way we prevail, as the Lord describes it at the end of this text, with God and with men, is because it is God himself who provides strengthening grace. Grace that causes us to look even through affliction, even acknowledging that God is the one who is Lord of providence, and still maintaining a firm grasp of those promises it, it is that strengthening grace that we require. And to Christ, to him alone, may we go for it. And may we do so in earnest. May we do so even now as we seek his face. Amen.